When I was a teenager, my brother was in a band and they were terrible, absolutely terrible, but they took themselves very seriously and hoped to make it big one day. They definitely did not. My brother is now a plumber for a veterans affairs hospital in New York state. And one of the bandmates is an elementary school teacher. Another has fallen off the face of the planet, but I believe is in factory work. And the final is a professor of computer engineering at a well-known college in New York state. All of this to say that Brian Schaefer, who is the topic of discussion on this episode, wanted to be in a band. He was a second year medical student at Ohio State University as his fallback option. Being a doctor was inspired by his late mother, Renee, who was a nurse for most of her adult life. And I can't imagine going to medical school as a fallback, but Brian was smart to say the least and saw being a doctor as a wonderful career if, quote, being a rock star didn't work out. Anyway, Brian grew up outside of Columbus, Ohio with his mom, Renee, his dad, Randy, and his brother, Derek, and I believe he was studying microbiology and even took a year off at one point. After returning to his undergrad, he applied to a medical school at Ohio State University where he studied with his girlfriend, Alexis, who was also a medical student. Brian was a huge fan of Pearl Jam and even had a tattoo of the stick man on his upper right arm. When Brian was out with friends, it sounds as if he were always finding new people, maybe mostly women, to talk to and striking up conversations with the band. He himself was a guitarist in his band with a few friends, and I'm not sure if the band was an ongoing thing, but it was my impression that it was something from his recent past, and I could be wrong there, so don't quote me. Brian was so close with his mom, and I'm totally inferring here as well, but I would venture to say that he was closer with her than his brother Derek was, and definitely closer to her than he was to his dad, Randy. After all, she was the reason he was going to medical school to begin with. In 2005, Renee was diagnosed with cancer, a rare bone cancer, and would pass away in March of 2006. That last Christmas spent with Renee, she gifted Brian and his then-girlfriend Alexis with a trip to Florida for spring break. According to every podcast known to man about this case, as well as most articles, Brian began fervently researching and planning his trip to Florida. It's rumored that he was supposed to be proposing to Alexis on this trip, but no one has ever spoken of a ring found, and there's also a lot of discrepancy over how long they had been dating. Some sources indicate that it had been even less than five months, which is way too short for a proposal. My opinion, of course. According to Dead or Alive podcast, Brian's mom had actually encouraged a proposal because of how sweet Alexis was and how he needed a woman like that to marry. Regardless, I guess we'll never know if he was going to propose or not. On March 31st, the first day of spring break, Brian met his dad for a steak dinner at Outback Steakhouse to celebrate the end of classes at OSU. Later, Randy reports to authorities that he felt his son looked exhausted and had been up multiple nights in a row studying all night. As I would find in my research, Randy and his father, Randy and I'm so sorry, Randy and Brian didn't have the best of relationships, and there is speculation that there was an affair that occurred that angered Brian, and while there's no proof of this, nor does it really matter, it's no surprise that Randy wouldn't be doling out advice to his son, though, if Brian and Randy had a strained relationship to start. Following dinner with his dad, Brian met up with his friend, used-to-be roommate, Clint Florence, at a popular OSU bar, the Ugly Tuna Saluna, and this was around 9 p.m., From there, they went to two more bars, North Shore Tavern and Brothers Bar and Grill, 
All of these places were within walking distance, as was Schaefer's apartment, roughly a half mile away. While out at these other establishments, they ran into another friend of Clint's, Meredith Reed. I believe this was the planned run-in. She accompanies them back to the Ugly Tuna, and the three of them are seen on surveillance footage at 1.15 a.m. going up the escalator to the Ugly Tuna. Clint runs into two more girls that he knows, Amber Ruick and Bright and Zacko, who are sitting at bar stools just inside of the entrance to Ugly Tuna. Brian ends up getting really comfortable with one of them and is seen even kissing her on her neck. She puts her phone number into his phone and Brian is again seen on camera talking to them just outside the bar at 1.55 a.m. And in this footage, he's seen having a brief interaction with them before heading back into the bar as the women head down the escalator and evidently leave or wherever it is that they go once they're off camera. For those of you thinking... What about the girlfriend who he's supposedly proposing to? Same, but I'm not going to get started on that. That's a different rant for a different time, I guess. When the bar begins to close at about 2.30 a.m., Clint and Meredith stood around looking for Brian, waiting for Brian, calling Brian's cell phone, while all calls are going straight to voicemail. At 2.09 a.m., Meredith and Clint are seen riding down the escalator to the street without Brian. They head back to the professor's home that Clint was house-sitting for, and no one was any wiser as to where Brian was, but it was assumed that maybe he walked home by himself, as it was close, and maybe his phone was dead and he passed out. They had been drinking heavily, and footage that captures him clearly shows that he's intoxicated. The next day, April 1st, 2006, Brian's girlfriend, Alexis Wagner, tries to call him. She didn't go out the evening before because she had gone home to Toledo, Ohio for the weekend, and I've heard it speculated that she was going home to clear her head, so to speak, about things with Brian, which maybe she should have been doing, but again, neither here nor there. But after a little bit of research, I found that she was actually going home to see her family dog, Ellie, as Ellie wasn't doing so well. Poor Alexis is home, possibly saying goodbye to her family doggo, while Brian is schmoozing with other women at the Ugly Tuna. So she called him around noon on that Saturday, and her call went straight to voicemail. Thinking nothing of it because he had been out drinking the night before, she calls a few more times throughout the day, but her calls continue to go straight to voicemail. Around midnight on the 1st, I guess moving into the 2nd, she starts to worry. Then as far as I can find, we have silence. On Monday morning, April 3rd, she and Brian are supposed to be at the airport to catch their flight to Miami, Florida, and she still hasn't heard from him since Friday evening when he left her a voicemail telling her how amazing she was and how much he loved her. And when she gets back into town, she went straight to his apartment, noticed everything looked totally normal, and his car was even there, which is strange, being that he wasn't. Where would he go and be MIA for days without having his own vehicle? Definitely strange. Evidently, she stayed there for quite a while waiting for Brian, and eventually his brother Derek showed up because like Alexis, Derek and his dad hadn't heard from Brian either, and Randy had actually sent Derek over there to check on Brian. Derek had been invited out on Friday evening by Brian, but already had other plans with his girlfriend, so they hadn't heard from him since then either. At this point, they report Brian missing to the police and decide to get a head start on the search, knowing too much time had already passed, so they went out searching dumpsters, checking hospitals, calling the county jail, 
and approaching passersby, hoping that someone had seen or heard from Brian, and they had no luck. They couldn't find a trace of Brian, and all calls continued to go straight to voicemail. The time for Alexis and Brian to go to Florida came and went, and with Brian not showing up for that, things took a very grim and serious turn. Everyone knew how excited Brian was for this trip, and how hard he'd worked in school and at his part-time job at JCPenney's, and he couldn't wait to be on the beach unwinding with Alexis. Now missing persons posters went up all over campus, the police got more involved, surveillance cameras were checked, and according to my research, Columbus, Ohio has more surveillance cameras than any other city, and no camera caught him leaving the ugly tuna, only entering it, which made an already peculiar case even more peculiar. On that note, I want to tell you too, if you're looking for a podcast that does a way more in-depth cover, excuse me, coverage of this case, I would definitely go listen to True Crime Garage. They are from the area and did a really good job covering this case. So anyway, all of the typical things were done and the police detectives went door to door. The cadaver dogs and scent hounds sniffed out the area and found nothing. Some of the detectives believed that Brian had left of his own volition and didn't want to be found. And I'm not sure how one would do that being as intoxicated as Brian was though. Two weeks go by and the reward for information leading to finding Brian Schaefer climbs to $25,000. Still, no one says anything. There is one report of a sighting of a guy in Columbus eating a sandwich in a back alley, but it turned out to not be him. They were all at a dead end with their search for Brian. Now, three weeks after his disappearance, dozens of people searched the Olentangy River in an effort to recover Brian. As much as no one wanted to find him on the banks of the river, people were also desperately hoping for conclusion or answers to this ongoing nightmare. And I want to touch again on Brian's relationship with his dad, because while I do not believe it was the greatest, I also do not believe for a second that it wouldn't have been stopped, that either would have stopped everything that they were doing to help find the other one. I don't feel that their strained relationship was so strained that there wasn't anything that could really come between them being there for each other. Anyway, Brandy started to think a little outside of the box and consulted with multiple psychics in his efforts. One, and this breaks my heart, believed that she saw Brian stuck to one of the concrete bridge posts trapped under the water. Randy waded through the water and checked every single post himself, nearly drowning in the process. This poor tortured man just lost his wife to cancer and is now wading through the cold river to try to find his son's body. And I cannot even imagine the pain that he must have been in. Tragically, Randy would pass before ever finding out what happened to his son. This message is for you, mamas, women who have been letting everyone else's dreams come ahead of their own, and anyone who feels like they're struggling to put themselves as a first priority. Your dreams matter now just as much as they did before life started happening. And so many of us forget that we once had dreams and desires that we wanted to see fulfilled and pushed it all to the back burner using things like logic and other good reasons as to why we shouldn't do them now. Well, if you're ready to start committing to your dreams, then I would ask you to visit my website, katherineintuitive.com and schedule a discovery call. If you're ready to really commit, then I have 12 weeks for you to do that, working with me one-on-one to really explore your life and get back to living it in the way that you so desire to. 
During a windstorm, his neighbor's tree fell down and hit Randy directly in the head, killing him instantly, leaving Derek without his mom, brother, and father all within two and a half years. Derek has been difficult to reach by most and has stepped away from the investigation pretty much altogether. I hope he's finding joy and peace wherever he is in life now. However, when Randy's obituary was posted online, someone posted, Dad, I love you, Brian, in the comment section, and listed their location as the Virgin Islands. We would come to find out, though, that this was a cruel hoax and was actually posted from a public computer in the Columbus area. What I get is like the image of some trash monkey sitting there literally posting on a library website, something like this. It's just, it's disgusting. So that is where our story seems to end. His case is still technically active and ongoing, but nothing of value has proved to find Brian so far. I have to say what I felt going into this case was peculiar. Do I feel Brian is dead or alive? I feel very strongly that Brian has passed away and is no longer with us here in physical form on earth. So what happened? For starters, I think Brian did manage to get out of the ugly tuna without being seen. I don't know if it was a freak glitch or what, but I do believe he walked out of that building on his own two feet. I don't believe he's still in there, nor do I believe he was killed in there. And this may shock you, but I also don't believe that Clint, despite much speculation, has had anything to do with it either. I think that Clint lawyered up and refused the lie detector test because he knew that he and Brian had an interesting relationship and he knew that people would look at him. Not wanting to fail the lie detector test for whatever reason, he opted out of taking it. I don't believe that he has anything to hide, but I do believe he was nervous that he had information that could paint Brian in a less than favorable light. Again, Brian was out getting phone numbers from other women while in a committed relationship. Not exactly the best behavior. I also, when I first felt into this case, I picked up on the word coke, like coked out. I don't know if Brian did cocaine, if it was a recreational thing or whatever, but I did. I don't know if that was even really specifically him or if he was just exposed to it and around it, but cocaine was something that I did pick up on. I feel that whatever happened though, happened outside of the ugly tuna. Like I said earlier, he slipped past the cameras, and this is another case, again, not intentionally, he just happened to not be caught on them. This is another case where I can only give snippets of what I'm seeing, but can't necessarily piece it together like some of the others. I do see a woman involved, but I'm not sure that she was involved so much as present in the situation. I see him traveling in a car with this woman at some point, and it feels like a Toyota, like a a four-door sedan, um, like a dark gray. And I see him stumbling out of the car when they pull up to the location. I get the idea that the woman was involved with someone else and that has something to do with his disappearance, but I don't believe she was ever on police radar. Like she was in question, neither was her significant other. I feel that neither one will ever speak up because she was convinced that she'd ruin her future, as would he, and they were quiet and have been ever since. I do not believe he was killed on purpose, I think that there was an argument, a scuffle around this woman. And I think that the strike in the argument is what eventually, I mean, I think it rendered him unconscious and he was, he was killed. Not, he wasn't just unconscious. He was dead. And I believe that they then loaded him into that Toyota and that's when they drove off with him. His phone was immediately shut off. And I believe that they buried him well outside of the city. 
I do believe that he was killed in one location and taken to a third location to be disposed of. I kind of get the idea that he was trying to like help this woman get home safely. At first, I thought maybe she was trying to help him get home, but I do believe he was she was intoxicated and and he was helping her get home. I mean, whether it was walking or something in that Toyota, like I see it pulling up on like a well-lit street. Um, obviously the streets would be well-lit in the city. I mean, I guess it's not so obvious, but I do feel like he was like, I feel like he was hit before he got into the car. And I don't know if that like first location is where, oh, it's just so hard to tell. Anyway, it feels to me as if where he's taken after he is rendered unconscious and actually dead is a property that's in the family of either the man or the woman involved. But it, if I feel like it's neglected and not traveled to very often, and so it was just safe to bring him there to do so. And I also think that he knew her from campus, and that's why he recognized her to walk her home in that that ugly tuna being the first location and the second location being like, en route to where she lived and he was picked up. I I could see the place that she lives, but I also, I wonder if they took him back there and then they decided to take him somewhere else because I can see her in like a second floor apartment or something like that, trying to figure out what's going on. And then they get back in the car. And when I really try to tune into it, you guys are getting a whole different side of this than I normally give. Like this is, this case confuses me so much, but When I talk about it now, I see her standing in there trying to figure things out and her significant other, like just pissed. Like he just feels pissed. And I think that that's when they go back downstairs and they drive Brian to this third location where they bury him. I think he was stumbling around before the car approached them. Anyway, it feels to me like this property has been neglected. It's not traveled to very often, so it's safe to bring them there. And I also think that um, it's like due east of OSU. I'm not sure how far one would have to get outside of the city. I did um, drop a pin on Google Maps on OSU and then scroll completely like due east to see when I stopped seeing like a lot of buildings and it looked more like farmland and, and like rural living. And once I saw that, I dropped another pin and it looked like it was only like 25 to 30 minutes. So I don't think that the drive would have been too bad getting out of the city. I see a row of pine trees though, to the left of the cabin. And it's like the cat, if you're standing there on like the dirt and gravel road, which I could hear the gravel, like crunching under the car tires, you can see looking at the front door of the cabin to the left of the cabin is like a porch. And then there's, um, a line of pine trees running along the left and then way far behind the cabin, there's also another run of pine trees. And then I feel like it's a clearing to the right of it. Also eventually trees, but it still feels like, I don't know if you're familiar with like how farmland is set up, but like it tends to be in plots, like in square plots for the fields. Right. And I think that's almost what it looks like. And, and frequently land like that is divided by a line of trees. I don't know if it's necessarily pine, but that's almost like the image that I'm getting around it. Um, anyway, it feels like something around the cabin is unique as well. Like it's a tin roof or something like that. Isn't it's not like a typical roof. It feels like a tin roof to me. Um, I think that 
I neglected to mention as well that months after Brian was missing, Alexis was still calling his phone daily. And one day it randomly rang instead of going straight to voicemail. And the phone company assured them that it was very likely a glitch in the system and that his phone likely wasn't on. I think that his phone was turned on though. I think the woman felt guilty for what had happened and had his phone, even though she wasn't supposed to, and one day turned it on to look at any pictures that were on it, to contemplate what had happened. And while it was turned on, the phone rang and she immediately, I can see her like turning it off and throwing it down and never turning it on again. I think she disposed of it after that as well. But the phone pinged in a suburb outside of Columbus. And I believe that's because she's from that area and still has the phone. Um, I don't think she'll ever turn herself in and neither will her accomplice. I don't believe they're still together, but I do believe that she has good reason not to report anything because I think that she has fear around this person. I don't think it was a very healthy relationship. Obviously, if you see someone walking your girlfriend home and you assault them, it's not clearly a good relationship. So my friends, that is all that I have on the disappearance of Brian Schaefer. And I know we went a little bit on a, on a like wild goose chase there for a minute, but you got a little bit of a a look into how the case breaks down as I look into it from a medium's perspective and why they don't, the police wouldn't completely count on what it is that we're seeing to be something that solves the case, so to speak, because it's not um, black and white. Okay. So if you or anyone you know has any information on the disappearance of Brian Schaefer, please contact the Ohio State Police. As usual, the sources are linked below in the show notes, and you can always head on over to Patreon to join us as we interview a killer or a victim every month or join us for a self-care session also once a month. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I will be back next week, my friends.